Your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Ahoy! Oh. Wow. This is Catherine with Your Positive Imprint. Well, I'm out here in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, United States, and I am at the world, well, I'm, at, I'm not there, but I'm at the home of the world-renowned Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, also known as Hui. Well, that screeching sound over there happens to be a ship. Well, anyway, I'm outside right now, and you can hear the wind and you can also hear the waves from the ocean here of the Atlantic Ocean, which I think is pretty awesome. It's really cold. It's actually April, but June is Ocean Awareness Month, which is when I am going to launch this episode. Oh, ah! Oh, you scared me. Well, over here I'm staring at a ship, and the ship takes off with passengers and equipment and supplies over to Martha's Vineyard. That screeching noise, ah, there it is again. <laughs> well, the screeching noise you hear is the loading taking place on the carrier hold. And I'm going to record long enough so you can hopefully hear the foghorn. That would be pretty awesome. Well, I came out here to Woods Hole, Massachusetts to have a recorded conversation here directly with Dr. Helen Phillips, who is a world, re wait a second, I think the ship's gonna take off. Let's see if we can get the foghorn, hold on, hold on. that's great <laughs> that's the foghorn coming directly to you from the Cape over here in Massachusetts well my husband and I came out here to Woods Hole Massachusetts to have a recorded conversation here with Dr. Helen Phillips she is a physical oceanographer scientist she does her research down under at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania getting a little bit windier and she often heads out into the southern or onto the southern ocean hopefully not into but she often heads out into the okay this is like a blooper reel because I'm kind of doing it live <laughs> well she often heads out in the southern ocean or as many of us also know it as the Antarctic Ocean she's from Australia and she's over here in the States just for a short time as she works on research and continues to provide an understanding of our ocean for our planet and of course for our future. Well, I also met some other scientists while over here and I hope to have recorded conversations with them as well. Well, June again is, a, is Ocean Awareness Month and regardless of where you are in the world, I really hope you are enjoying pictures of the ocean, documentaries, traveling on a ship yourself or better yet, sitting on a beach enjoying the sounds of the waves. Well, thank you so much for listening and supporting your positive imprint where global conversations are taking place all over the world and inspiring achievements are inspiring positive actions. I am enjoying this very cool morning with a wonderful world-renowned scientist who is here in the United States for just a few weeks to share some of her climate change data. And she is from Tasmania and her name is Helen E. Phillips. Mm -hmm. Good morning, Helen. Good morning, Catherine. Well, we are enjoying a cup of tea, so cheers <laughs> to all of the wonderful scientists in the world who are providing scientific research so that we have something to learn and to understand and to change our practices for a better tomorrow. Yes. Yeah. Better tomorrow would be a very good thing. It, it would. So you are from Tasmania. That's right. And so what was that like growing up? So I, I didn't actually grow up in Tasmania. I was born there when um, my mother grew up there. And she wanted to study medicine when she got to the right age to do that. And in Tasmania at that time, or in, in Hobart, they didn't have that available at the university. So she did a first-year science Yeah. She started a science degree and, and did first year science and then she moved to Sydney to live with an aunt to complete her medical studies. 
And she met my father there and they came back to Tasmania for their, their early, I guess, I don't know if it's internship or registrar years. And, and then I was born during that time. But pretty soon after we left Tasmania and went to Sydney and then overseas and back to Sydney and then finally settled in Adelaide when I was 10 years old. And so Adelaide is where I went to high school and university. And then I came back to Tasmania after I finished my science degree in 1986 to take up a summer job at the, at the CSIRO, which is our government science lab in Australia. And particularly in Hobart, they have the oceanography and, and marine science going on. So is there something that inspired you as a child that made you want to go into marine Oceanography? Studies? Oceanography. Yeah, so there's no, no biology in, in my area of oceanography. It's all, it's all physical science, so based on maths and physics. So I, I was a bit of a drifter as a, as a young person, and I think I, I was a bit of an introvert, pretty quiet, didn't socialise very easily. My kids make fun of me about that these days. <laughs> I take it they're not introverts. <laughs> well, they are, but they they are very good at you know interacting with their friends and maintaining their social social circles and playing sport, which is a great thing I think to get you out of your shell. So I enjoyed studying. I found it a very rewarding thing, and maths and and physics were well defined. So I when I answered a question correctly it was it was really obvious if it was correct whereas if you write an essay in English or or history or <laughs> it, it's it's um, a less exact science and maybe open to more interpretation of what's good and what's bad so I liked the exactness of science and then when I left school I I didn't really have a clear idea of what I wanted to be but I knew that science was part of my life and I um, took I didn't have great grades when I finished I got a, a boyfriend in year 11 yeah yeah the final year of high school and he was a bit distracting <laughs> and so I I didn't do as well as I perhaps should have given my comfort with studying and so I my parents were both doctors and I'm sure they had aspirations for me to become a, a doctor but I didn't get high enough grades to enter a medical degree and so I entered a science degree at Flinders University in South Australia and there they had a, a department of earth sciences and it was possible to study oceanography and meteorology and I thought well that sounds good <laughs> and I always loved the sea and my uncle was a sailor and so when we visited him he would take us sailing and and it all sounded very romantic and so I thought yes definitely I'll be an oceanographer <laughs> and so I just I just started studying that in in that program and got to the end of my science degree and graduated with a bachelor of science in oceanography and meteorology and then an opportunity came up to take a summer job in Hobart with the CSIRO Division of Oceanography and I applied for that and was successful. So I moved to Hobart for that two months and worked with some, some really great people there and enjoyed my time, got another new boyfriend yeah. <laughs> and did not go home. So I stayed in Hobart. My parents were very concerned but it, it worked out and so I, I didn't have a, a job at the beginning but I kept in touch with the people there and, and eventually a job came up and so I became a research assistant for one of the senior scientists there, Gary Myers, who is now no longer with us, but he was a, a wonderful man. And, a, and what, were, what was your study with him? Well, I was helping him analyse data from measurements in the Indian Ocean and they're measurements made from merchant ships so it's it's called the ship of opportunity program and the instrument they use is a an expendable bathythermograph or xbt for short and it was an early way that was developed to measure the temperature in the ocean down to initially maybe 400 meters depth but later almost wow. 800 meters depth and that was really a, a revolution in in getting many many measurements of the of the ocean temperature and seeing how it changed from week to week and year to year. So we started to understand about seasonal changes in, in the temperature of the ocean and 
how how the temperature would change from year to year. If we had an El Nino, then the, the temperature in the Indian and Pacific Oceans is is very different than than if it's a, not an El Nino or if it's the opposite, which is a La Nina. And and so that XBT program dates back in from the I'm going to say 80s. I'm not really good at remembering dates in history, but I'm going to say the 80s. And so Gary was very big part of setting up that monitoring program from based from Australia and uh, his colleague Stuart Godfrey was also very instrumental in that as well and so there was a lot of data that was there from all that time and, and Gary was trying to understand how the ocean varies in response to different different climate effects and so I helped him by doing the programming and producing the the figures and helped him write up the scientific papers about the results that he found. So, yeah, it was, it was very interesting. And I continued to work there for about nine years. I worked with Gary. I moved on to an, another group just because things, funding shifted around and, and that's just how it worked out. But in 1995, I, I just decided that I would like to become my own director of, of what research I was doing and, and the pathway to do that was to get a PhD. So I en enrolled at the University of Tasmania and started a PhD. The topic that I chose was looking at some observations in the Southern Ocean that my supervisor, Steve Rintoul, had collected. And these were from a, a mooring. We call it a, a mooring, or actually this was this was several moorings. And what that means is is that you have this really long wire or or rope on which you would attach instruments, and you add some flotation so that when you put it all off the ship, and you don't just throw it. It's a very laborious process for getting it into the ocean. <laughs> but it has a, a very large anchor on the bottom. So that might be old railway wheels or lumps of concrete. And so that has enough weight to carry this string of, of instruments down so that the bottom part is on the bottom of the ocean. and Which then, could be metres and metres. Yeah, 5,000 yeah. metres deep. Oh, my gosh. Is a typical value. And then the, the flotation causes the wire to stand up straight in the ocean and then the instruments measure temperature and salinity and ocean currents up, up through the water column. So he had two years of, of observations from, I think it was four moorings. No, maybe it was five. Yeah, five moorings in the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, which is the kind of the boundary between the warm waters of the, the tropics and the subtropics and the very cold waters around Antarctica. And so we were interested in how the heat from from north of the current actually is carried across the current. And and so I analysed these observations and that's, that's what my, my PhD was based on. Oh, how interesting. Then you got your PhD mm -hmm. and you went into the same research that you had been doing. I've come back to it. I, I had some detours. So I came to Atoll Oceanographic after I finished my PhD and I worked with Terry Joyce there who was interested in the, the North Atlantic ocean circulation and particularly the, the subtropical gyre and the waters that are formed within there just, just to the east of, of where we are now. Uh, so I, I worked with him for almost two years looking at, at how those waters are changing through time and, and what controls that variability. So is it dominated by seasonal changes or is there, and we know that there are large changes from year to year associated with, with climate phenomenon like the North Atlantic Oscillation and, and other things. So that was an, an interesting time because I had two very young children and, and my husband left his job, well, took a break from his job in Hobart to come and, and be the primary carer of the two kids. Who are now 20 and 18. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it was it was an intense time. Yeah. When you're talking about the North Atlantic, are you talking about the off of any coastline like from the United States or are you talking way in the middle of, of the North Atlantic? So in this particular piece of work, it was really the North Atlantic just off the coast of 
of the US okay. and, and up into the Labrador Sea. So we were interested in in the pathway of the, the Labrador Sea waters down through the, the lower latitudes. There is, there's a wonderful monitoring station off Bermuda that's been there. At that time it was 50 years, so I guess that means it's almost 70 years long yeah. of a record. <laughs> and uh, so that Bermuda uh, time series, there are more than one now, but, but there was the long oceanographic one that I was working with. And so it records the, the changes in, in the different layers of, of the ocean. So we can see the, the water that's, that's formed in the, in the subtropics. And yeah, so, so there are different layers in the ocean, the warmer, warmer layers formed in the, in the subtropics and the deeper layers that generally are formed at higher latitudes that, that move into the, the region. So Terry's interest was in changes in the North Atlantic subtropical mode water. And so that's in the, the upper part of the ocean and it's, it's a, a warmer, warmer water mass. And so we looked at the, the time series from this Bermuda record that had been collected for decades and we were comparing it with the observations in a, a climate model to see how well the model was capturing the variability that was being observed. And the wonderful thing about our time now is that we we also have observations from satellites so we can see very good detail in how the surface of the ocean is changing through time and we can see we can map the surface currents based on the satellite information look at the surface temperatures and now even the sea surface salinity so we have a lot of spatial information to provide context around very detailed spot measurements in the ocean that that can be repeated over many years okay so now you are in the north atlantic but how did and how did you get back over to your home birthplace? Mm. Well, we were we were quite keen to go back to Australia. So the the kids were then four and two, and uh, my husband had been on leave from his job, and and he needed to go back and and take that up again. So I looked for a, a position for me, and I was fortunate that back in Hobart there was a job that came up working on what was then a very new data stream called the Argo Profiling Array, Profiling Float Array. And the Argo Array and, and how it's revolutionised how we, how we can observe the ocean and the, the, the detail that we have over the entire global ocean in the upper 2,000 metres. It's been an incredible... I was offered a job back in, at the CSIRO in Hobart and it was to work with Susan Wafels, who's now back in Hui, to work on... In Hui, for the listeners, Hui is this area. <laughs> yes, it's the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Susan had a postdoctoral fellowship uh, that I was offered, and it was working with the, the new observations that were coming from the Argo Profiling Float Array. So Argo was a, a dream of many people and built up from... A lot of instrument development over many years but essentially an Argo float is a, a little ocean robot so it's about oh, cool. as tall as tall as I am uh, it has a it's a yellow cylinder about the size of a, a dinner plate and it has internal equipment that allows it to change its buoyancy so it can it can sink down to 2,000 meters depth and then uh, rise back up again to the surface. And as it rises up, it measures the temperature and the salinity at, at fine detail up through the water column. And then when it reaches the, the sea surface, it has a, an antenna to communicate with satellite and transmit its data. And they're programmed to just continually repeat that, that profiling and, but when they're down at depth, they'll drift for, for 10 days. And in drifting, they're, they're sort of feeling the ocean currents of the, of the deeper part of the ocean. And then they profile to give us temperature and salinity. And temperature and salinity measurements are the basis of physical oceanography because from many profiles that allow us to map temperature and salinity, 
we can calculate the, the density of the ocean and the density can tell us what the currents are doing. So if you think about a weather map and they often draw lines of constant pressure and so you can see big uh, high pressure systems moving over the, the country or low pressure systems and, and we know that the winds tend to follow those lines of constant pressure. So I'll just say that by, by mapping temperature and salinity that tells us about the density in the ocean and the variations in the, in the density allow us to work out the direction and, and the size of the currents at different depths throughout the, the water column. And what's the importance of that? What, what do you use the data for when you're getting that information? So the data is used in many ways and the most revolutionary thing that Argo has delivered is our ability to track the warming of the oceans through time. Climate change. So Argo has only been in existence since 2005. So there's really only just over a decade that we've had these observations globally in, in parts of the ocean that are deeper than 2,000 metres. But even in that short time, we've seen dramatic increases in the amount of warming of, of the ocean and in the amount of heat that the ocean is storing and consequently the amount of sea level rise that we've experienced. And so that sea level rise it would be from melting ice, is that correct? That's part of it. There are many contributors, so there is a contribution from melting ice, but the ocean actually, like any any fluid that you heat, it, it expands. So as the ocean is warming, oh, it's yes. just becoming expanded and so it sits higher than it, than it did when it was colder. And so it's really that thermal expansion that is, is a very large part of the, the sea level rise story. And so as a scientist, when you're looking at these numbers, and you've been studying oceanography for so long, do these numbers, do they alarm you? Yes, they alarm me very much because it's not just the temperature rise that that's happened. We are already committed to continuing temperature rise just based on how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere and and. And, and we can't go backwards. We, we can slow it down and we can stop it and maybe eventually it will go backwards, but we're already locked in to, to decades of sea level rise based on where we are now. Okay. So it's, it's a really urgent problem that needs communities and governments and industry to work together to stop emitting carbon dioxide and arrest these changes. Do you lobby at all? How do you get governments to change? I mean, if they, or do you just send the research and hope they read it? How does this work? I, th I think that it's, it's tricky for scientists to lobby because you have to maintain the independence of your, your research. You're, this, you're there to do the research and, and present the facts of, of what's happening. So there are strong efforts within the science community to frame the science results in a way that can be easily understood by people working in governments making policy. So that, that science to policy interface is um, very important and, and many, many scientists around the world are, are doing their bit to try to, to convert what they know into information that can be used to, for policymakers to define our futures. But that's only only one side of the information that that these policymakers are receiving, and somehow it it doesn't always get listened to. Well, like with anything, I suppose. And so you were out on a boat, and often when you do go out for your research, it's not just you. You have other scientific collaborators with you, because everybody's doing a different form of research or they're providing something to the research, like instruments. Have you ever experienced, I, I know that the ones that you had on this last boat, it was United Kingdom, United States, Australia. Yes. And what about like any of the Asian countries? Are there scientists that you've worked with or who, or you've read their research, they're doing the same type of research? Mm. No, I have colleagues in China and Japan. And so this is truly worldwide. It is. It's very much a worldwide. And they're getting the same results as you. 
very consistent results in terms of changes that that are being experienced by the ocean but everybody is you know focusing on on different areas right. to try to build a, a more broad knowledge base yesterday during your talk you mentioned something about the gulf stream and the fluid exchange and i found that quite interesting because I, i've never thought about this can you explain it a little bit for the listeners because i certainly am not the one to explain it <laughs> i'll try <laughs> uh so we know a lot about the Gulf Stream because it's it's just offshore from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and, and there are many uh, well-resourced countries in, in the north, around the North Atlantic Rim who've been able to invest in, in oceanographic research in the North Atlantic. And so the Gulf Stream is probably the most well-known large current in, in the ocean. And there was some research done looking at, at how the current wiggles or, or meanders as it, after it leaves the coast of the USA and moves off into the um, Atlantic interior, it becomes a, a bit more of a, a meandering stream. And in those meanders, eddies are formed. So eddies are like circular rings of current that, that have distinct water properties in the middle because they've they're a way of exchanging water from the cold side of the current to the warm side of the current and and the reverse. So if it's if the eddy is formed by water from the cold side moving moving south, then when the when the eddy separates from the main current, it'll it'll carry this the cold waters that it that it had near it when it was forming into the into the warm side so it's one way that heat and nutrients and even fish are, are carried out of their comfort zone into into a new place so we're very interested in in how water moves across a current and as well as this big eddy formation there are also other ways that that water can can move away from the center of of this meandering current and so using very clever um, drifting instruments called RAFOS floats so using these RAFOS floats the authors of, of this study Amy Bauer and uh, Tom Rosby demonstrated some principles that that happen in in exchanging fluid out of the current so the interest for me is that we're studying a different current. We're studying the Antarctic Circumpolar Current south of, well, I guess that it flows all the way around Antarctica and separates the warm waters of the subtropics from the cold Antarctic. But we know that heat must cross this, this current because that's how the Earth maintains a stable climate. By It receives more sun around the equator and it loses a lot of heat around Antarctica and somehow there has to be a pathway from the incoming heat at the equator to the outgoing heat at the pole. So both the atmosphere and the ocean contribute to that to that cycle. And the Antarctic Circumpolar Current is like a big wall in the path of this of this movement of heat. And so we need to understand the processes that allow the heat to move across the current. And eddies and the meandering of the current are a very key part of that story. So what we've learned in the Gulf Stream, we're now applying to the Antarctic Circumpolar Current and, and finding that it it's very uh, similar. From what I understand, I think you were doing research in that area back in October. Yes. November, and you were collecting samples of temperatures as well. So do, are you finding that the temperatures are changing within these eddies? And are you finding that also the meandering is changing at all? So, or is the heat, the higher temperature, causing it to change? Mm. So from one from one voyage, we don't really look at changes over a long time. It's like a detailed snapshot that we can use to to understand the physical processes that are happening inside the meander, and then to look at the long term changes. We we need repeat measurements. Right. And we get those more recently through the Argo Array. 
so since 2005 we have we have repeated measurements and so we can look at changes in in the ocean temperature through time but before that all we had were research vessels that would repeat particular lines in the ocean so south of oh, across the southern ocean there are there are several lines that go from north to south and they've been repeated you know, every five or ten years for quite a long time and so these are what we use to document those long-term changes in the temperature and, and current structure and we also have the satellite observing system so we can measure the height of the sea surface from satellite and we've had those observations since the early 90s so that record is actually incredibly valuable for seeing how the pathways of the currents have changed, how the strength of the currents have changed, how the the generation of eddies has increased in the Southern Ocean. And so we put all these things together when we try to understand the whole story. Talking about your whole story, do these changes that you've been seeing, how will like the current, the eddy and so on, does that affect climate change at all? It's certainly affected by climate change. So we're seeing strengthening winds over the Southern Ocean, which are causing the, the currents to generate more eddies, so then becoming more unstable, generating more eddies, and those eddies are contributing to more rapid movement of heat. So the thing is that everything is, is connected. So the ocean temperatures are felt by the atmosphere, and so the ocean um, experiences change due to global warming. The amount of heat stored in the ocean increases is has been increasing and will continue to increase through global warming and and that gets fed back into the atmosphere so there's more heat and, and more moisture available to the atmosphere so that yeah so the ocean and the atmosphere system are, are very connected and any changes that are experienced in the ocean will will impact the atmosphere and so there's a continual cycle of information between the ocean and the atmosphere and so one of my frustrations is is knowing how climate change is progressing and although many people are trying to do things to to improve the situation and we're not seeing major governmental direction towards a really different way of of living on this planet so that we can stay within its resources and so I, I really enjoy my work and, and I love the, the detailed methodical analysis of the observations and, and that's a real pleasure. But sometimes I think that it's, it's not enough just to stay at my desk and keep analysing these observations and writing up what the results mean and sending it out to journals and sharing it as well as I can with the, the community and with government because it feels like you know, we've known for so long that that climate change is having devastating impacts on on the entire planet. And in my case, I see it through warming of the ocean and sea level rise. So it seems a little bit insufficient to just keep doing this work because it's really like monitoring the patient until he or she dies. It's not actually intervening to fix the problem and maybe save the life. So I think that I want to find ways that I can intervene that are consistent with me to try to save the planet without compromising my value as a scientist in delivering facts that are uh, just the facts without becoming a, a lobbyist for one side of government or, or the other. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. That's a good analogy, though, using the patient. I never thought of it that way. And as residents of the earth, if we just continue to read your research or see it on NOVA or Nature or these other shows, we're doing the same thing. We're just listening and monitoring, watching it die. What an analogy. I never thought about that. And that gives such a visual, which is kind of a scary visual. Mm -hmm. I guess one of the important things that's going on in the ocean right now is that more heat is being carried under the ice shelves in Antarctica, causing the loss of ice from the base of these ice shelves. Oh. 
And so that's accelerating the, the melting of these ice shelves from below, which increases the amount of fresh water that's being put out into the, into the ocean. And it's also destabilizing those ice shelves. So they're, if they continue to melt, then they'll break away from the continent. And those ice shelves are actually like a stopper in a, in a bottle for the glaciers that are running off Antarctica. So there's very, very slow movement of these glaciers towards the coast. And there's a natural cycle of the glaciers flowing out into the ocean and, and icebergs breaking away. And, but that's accelerating. And so if these ice shelves actually melt enough to, to disappear, then that takes the stopper away from the glaciers. And, and the fear is that these will accelerate and more fresh water will be delivered to the ocean, which will cause a dramatic rise in, in sea level. Sure. Mm-hmm. And loss of animal life. Right, because it's upsetting the ecosystems right. that support them. Yes. This is so interesting. So now when you went out on the boat last, just recently, October, November, you were talking uh, to my husband actually about the cost. Listeners have no idea what it actually entails to go out. You know, it's not just going out and observing and collecting data. You're actually using, you know, million dollar instruments. Mm. Can you kind of share just a little bit about what you know about the finances of the research you're doing? Yes, I can tell you from the Australian perspective. Yeah, okay. In Australia, we have what we call the Marine National Facility. So it's a ship called our Research Vessel Investigator. And it's available for all Australians to use, but you have to make a proposal to say what what you would do with this ship. And you have to support it by showing that you're a scientist with some some track record in in doing good work and uh, writing publications and communicating with the public and, and demonstrate that you will do good things with the resources of the ship. And so we apply a couple of years ahead of when we actually want to use the ship and we have to explain the the scientific background for why we want to do this work. We have to say how many days it will take, what equipment we'll be using and and who are our international collaborators who will be part of this, this program. And so if you are successful... And the competition is tough. <laughs> if you are successful, then you, you get the ship. They tell you uh, what dates you have it. And for those dates, you have access to this this ship and the people that run it for free. So, oh, so you don't have that. See, I didn't catch that. Mm. Yeah, so it's like a grant. Yeah. But it's not money. It's the ship, the ship time and the resources on board. So you still have to pay to move your people to where the ship is or to freight instruments that you want on the ship uh, to get there. But then then you go out on the ship and it's like a little a little village. So there are cooks there making our making our food three meals a day, three hot meals a day and there's always things to graze on. There's the officers who are who are operating the ship and the deck crew who are supporting the, both the operation of the ship and the, the scientific work that's going on for us on this voyage it was a trip into the southern ocean so we left Hobart and traveled for three days to get to the place where we were going to be working in the Antarctic Circumpolar Current and you have to anticipate how much time you'll lose due to storms going through because if it's if it's too rough the ship can't work and you just have to wait but we were very lucky we went to the the polar front which turned out to be much calmer during that time than, than further north in the current. So we were not interrupted too many times from the work that we were doing. And you were, you were on the ship for about a month. Right. Yeah, that's right. And so we had a quite a varied suite of instrumentation that we were using. So the, the backbone of our observations is what's called a CTD. It stands for Conductivity Temperature Depth profiler so it's an electronic instrument that sits within a, a big metal frame and on the outside of the frame there are, are bottles for capturing water at different depths and there's 
there are other instruments to measure the ocean currents and the um, how many particles are in the water column, how much chlorophyll there there is there, how, what is the oxygen levels within the water. And so this instrument we lower all the way to the seafloor, which in this case was around 4,000 metres, but it can be up to 6,000 metres depending on where you go and, and even deeper if you happen to be in, a, in an abyss, above an abyss. So there was the CTD and we did a regular grid of, of stations to survey this meander of, of the polar front. And we also used a, a quite new instrument called a triaxis, which is like, like a little... Uh, you fly it like an aeroplane, but it actually looks like a box. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it gets towed behind the ship, but it can profile from the surface down to 300 metres, and it does that continuously along the path behind the ship. So it provides really detailed information about that upper part of the, of the water column. And so we get temperature and salinity and currents and lots of biological, biochemical measurements. Then my particular favourite is the EM Apex Profiling Float. It's a bit similar to the Argo Float I described, except that this one has the added capacity to measure ocean currents. And that's incredibly valuable because that not only tells you what is the state of the ocean right now, what's its temperature and what's its salinity, but actually the direction that that water's moving. So is it water that's moving along the current or is it water that's being pushed into the current from other places? So it really allows us to untangle the, the physical processes that are happening in the ocean. So these, these floats profile maybe 500 times before they lose their battery power. So we put them in the water and we leave them to follow their, their programmed mission and they report by satellite their observations and they they get caught up in eddies and they get sent in all strange directions and we can follow their progress just through their reports to the satellite and so we had four of those on this trip and they're still continuing and they're east of New Zealand now which is which is a pretty long way that they've traveled and every uh, four times a day they report back a profile and this is the instrument how long will it last? I think about another month we'll, we'll see them. Oh, and you're going back down there. Do you uh, collect these or do they just fall to the bottom of the ocean? So they fall to the bottom of the ocean when, when their battery expires. And, and so uh, they could be collected if we had a ship right there. But the cost of the ship is like $130,000 a day. And the cost of the oh instrument is $32,000 for their lifetime. Oh, so okay. it's sort of a, a cost-benefit analysis. And they, the floats are travelling much further than we could go in the ship because of the time it would take to cover that distance. And so they're, they're returning us information well beyond what we could accomplish with a ship. And oh. I am uncomfortable with it being disposable and ending up on the bottom of the ocean, but... The value of what they return to us is really incredible. Yeah. Wow. So they're deployed and then they're out there. And how big are these things? Similar to an Argo float. So the diameter is about oh, the size of a dinner dinner plate. And they're see. like, I don't know, about shorter than me. 1.2 meters high, something like yes. that. With a satellite antenna on the top. Okay. One more last question because I find this so interesting. You go out to this eddy but how do you how did you know and you did you did talk about this at at one point just when we were having a conversation and I just found it so interesting because you talked about history you know the navigators of of the past how you also talk about that that's just so Mm. the way you find the eddy at least the way the the navigators who just had the stars Mm. they didn't have instruments Right. So maybe before I talk about that, I'll just step back and say our um, way of finding eddies and and different currents these days is to use satellite measurements. So the the satellite measures the sea surface height and it can see currents as sharp changes in 
in the sea surface height. So warmer waters sit higher than colder waters and currents tend to uh, flow between them. The currents are where the changes in, in the sea surface height are, are very rapid. And the eddies... How, and how long, how wide can an eddy be? And then an eddy is like a piece of the current that's broken away and it's got a, a circular vortex shape. And, and we can see those from satellite because they have the closed contours of, of sea surface height. So they're very, very circular features. And if you looked at temperature, you'd see it was either cold or warm. Sometimes you can see it in, in the chlorophyll, the amount of um, plant life in, in the ocean. Yeah, so their size in, in the Southern Ocean would be on the order of a couple of hundred kilometers in diameter so these are quite big things but they can they can be all different sizes how did these navigators how would they find them so in the in the old days of of sail people would navigate by the stars and and set their course to to go wherever they wanted to go and they would continue to check their position to make sure they were on track and when you're in a, a current, it will push push your ship off course. It might, if it's directly behind you, it'll give you a nice a nice advantage and carry you faster. If it's coming towards you, then it then it slows you down. And if it's off to the side, then it will make the ship be pushed one way or the other. And so these navigators would keep records of where they expected to be based on the ship that the based on the speed that the ship was moving and then where they actually were based on their navigation. So they could see that over the course of their, their journey they were being offset by, by the currents and they could estimate the size of the currents. And so there were very good records kept by navigators of ships of, of the drift that they experienced when they were on these journeys. And many years ago, I won't even hazard a date, but <laughs> interested uh, people put these reports together and built up an atlas of the currents, the surface current around the world, probably starting with, with particular regions that were well covered and then right. expanding out to, to larger regions. And so the surface currents were well known, have been known for um, as long as people have been going out into the ocean. And it's, it's only, I guess, with the benefits of modern instrumentation that we can do really accurate measurements and monitor how these currents are changing through time and, and how they vary from the surface down to the deep, deep ocean. And I just find that so, in my own little mind, kind of a romance with the navigators. Yeah, you know? And I really like that, that they left their legacy in that respect it's a, it's a very physical legacy mm. you know it's not just one oh yeah you know the navigators out there but it was a physical legacy for scientists yes. and that's that's really for me that's really yeah. awesome <laughs> we would be outside by the ocean with the birds out there but it is so cold and it's so windy the listeners probably hear the heater coming on every now and again yes. because it is quite quite cold out there so we're having the interview here in this lovely home that is actually quite close, right, I mean, it's right across the street from a beautiful pond that the ocean feeds, kind of feeds into. Yes. The way we met. So, very interesting. So you, you actually had met my niece. Yes. I had met your niece, so your niece came on our voyage with us, and she was, she was a delight. But before that, I have had a long-term interest in finding better ways to share what we as scientists know with the rest of the people in our in our world. And I often find that when people learn that I'm a scientist and I study the ocean, then they, they make the connection to climate change and they would ask me, is climate change real? And it's kind of sad because we've known climate change is real. Yes. For many decades, right. like at least in the 1980s, it was understood as a threat to our to our world, and it was the physics of it were known about a long time before that. 
And so it's it's astonishing to me that, that people still don't know that it's real. And I feel like scientists are very good at understanding what's going on and, and sharing it as widely as they can. But most of the scientists I know are, are pretty quiet people and we don't we don't get on our soapbox. But the trouble is that there are there are so many vested interests in in our society and they have very loud voices and very deep pockets and they can they can sway the message that's going out to the community to benefit themselves and and their companies and I think our governments are not very good at understanding where there's a conflict of interest and where they should just not listen to that side of the story without giving very good consideration of all the other pieces of information, particularly from scientists that are coming in. So I have been trying to understand you know, how we can share better directly with, with the people because for governments to listen, they have to be told by the people that they that we need change. And so the people need the information of what's going on and they need to understand that it's it's a serious threat I was just reading an article this morning about some young people who'd gone to visit your Congress, Congress men and women, talking about the the generational, oh, I don't remember the words they used, a generational inequality where so much of the planet's resources are being used right now and nothing's being preserved for the next generations. Right. And we live on a planet, people forget that we live on a on a planet that's in space and we only have what's on our planet and everything that we throw away is still on our planet and we're gradually being buried by it. <laughs> so there's a very strong need to act act now. And anyway, so that's the background of, of me wanting to find ways to better tell people what we as scientists see all the time. And so I was at a conference, an ocean, or a science conference, where there was a group collect to discuss oceanography and there were some side events and one of them was called storytelling your science and I like storytelling and I'm very into science and so I went along and I enjoyed this presentation by a woman who who ran a, a media she worked with a group of people to create films to tell the stories of science so documentaries. documentaries and and I told her about our voyage that was coming up and I wondered whether there was any possibility that, that a filmmaker might be able to join us. And she was really enthusiastic and, and really wonderful. And so we had a few conversations and she said that she knew just the person to send. Um, it would be an internship, so we had to do some fundraising to be able to help with the internship support. And and so she said, yes, there's this young woman called Sarah Lania who's a master's student. I think we should send her. And so we had a, a meeting with Gianna and Sarah together and, and Sarah was really excited and, and keen. And so it happened, she came on our voyage and she was really busy taking film everywhere. It wasn't just about the instruments or the scientists, it was about what were the, what were the cooks making, what was happening with the southern lights, which we call it Aurora Australis, the wildlife that was out there, the weather, just, just anything and everything. And, and so she's, she's putting all of that film together to make a, a short documentary on our voyage. But she also, and OMI, Ocean Media Institute, have made everything that she collected available so that we can use it in our teaching and in our communications with public. So we have an incredible resource there. And on the voyage, Sarah mentioned her aunt who was um, interested in, in the positive imprints that people were making and, and she talked about how you'd come from education and just decided it was time for a change and moved into this, this new part of your life. And so that was great. I thought that was wonderful. And then after the voyage, I got this email from Catherine <laughs> saying, could we, yeah. could we meet? And That's I'm great. here and I'm so glad we that I was able to come out here. And something that you said that made me just giggle. Yesterday at the talk, 
you had all of these people around you that were setting up for you and and introducing you, getting your mic set up, getting everything set up, and here I am with the microphone for my own podcast and setting that up, and you came over and you said, well, I guess I'm important for at least one day. <laughs> it made me giggle because the importance of, of you, you are important globally in your every single day, not just the one day. Your research is so much needed. And I hope you're able to continue it. Thank you. And yes. you keep competing with those down for that ship mm. and doing your research because this is very much needed and I hope that there will be some sort of change. I think we all have to just tell ourselves it's not okay anymore because for a long time, I think it's, it's been too hard to know what to do about climate change. And so it's... It's not as not as scary as you know that that big bill that you have to pay at the end of the week, or it, it's a little bit further from our doors than than the most immediate dangers. But we've got to the point now where we have to we have to reach the peak of our carbon emissions next year in order to have any hope of keeping the planet to less than one and a half degree warming. So that's that's right now. And I think we just have to say what's going on now is not okay and and demand that we have change because by doing nothing, we're really deciding. Doing nothing is making a decision. It's it's making the decision that that today is more important and we're important. Today is more important and we don't think that the future of our children is as important as, as our right now. And of course, our children are in our right now but the world that they will live in is vastly different from the one that we've enjoyed. Unless we say right now, this is not good enough, we demand that action is taken to improve our future and our children's future. So I think that that's a challenge to all of us to try and find ways that we can make a difference and we can cause change to happen. We need a revolution. This is a great way to end this podcast with your words of wisdom and the fact that climate change is not a philosophy, it is a science. So thank you so much, you are a delightful person, and I can't wait to go see you in Australia or you know, yes. over in Tasmania. Please come visit. I we will definitely do that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you for listening to Dr. Helen Phillips. You can learn more about Helen and her research by going to University of Tasmania's website. The RV Investigator is the vessel in which Helen spoke about. It is the Australian marine research vessel dedicated to marine research throughout Australia's vast ocean territories. Google RV Investigator to learn more. There's a live stream link available when the vessel is out at sea. It's pretty cool. It's pretty awesome. Next week's episode features scientist Kurt Poulsen. He shares his stresses and joys of being a scientist. Again, happy ocean month. Thank you to Chris Knoll for the great music. Learn more about his music and career at chrisknoll.com. C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E.com. Get on my email list so you can be updated on featured guests as well as my podcast behind-the-scene notes. Sign up by going to yourpositiveimprint.com. You can also access all of my episodes from yourpositiveimprint.com or iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast venue. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast, Your Positive Imprint. What's your PI? Subscribe now 